In today's Health Unplugged conversation, I had the pleasure of sitting down for a chat with none other than Dr. John Lang. John has spent his entire career studying and working in the well-being world. Having started out as a PhD student studying muscle physiology, John has since both created and contributed tremendously to a variety of current health-focused technologies and innovations. In our conversation, John shares several lesser-known stories from his journey so far, including his love for and achievements in ugly diving, we chatted about the potential future of genomic medicine and discussed his latest exciting venture in the corporate well-being space. Welcome to a whole new level of thinking here and I hope that you'll appreciate the sheer breadth of knowledge and experience that John brings to this conversation. It's a longer one this time, but I know that you'll enjoy it. So here we go. like a nice day though behind you at the moment it's uh it's dark and slightly snowy actually where i am but it looks like a bright and sunny day where you are and i'm yeah it's harboring some resentment over that right now <laughs> yeah it's uh we're in the middle of um la nina which is uh the opposite of el nino so we're in the wet period and we've had rain you know intermittently now for the last couple of weeks and probably a, a few more days in it yet but it's a very moist air mass that comes over and dumps on the east coast so we're you know this time last year we're in the midst of one of the biggest droughts in history and massive fires you know lost a few yeah. million hectares of, well in fact an equivalent the area the equivalent of the uk into fires uh, this time last year and now all the dams are full and we're flooding <laughs> so that's australia for you <laughs> when people say that like versions of that you know a certain amount of hectares and so on and it's the size of the uk it's just like something that I can't even begin to perceive the, the the size of because of the relative size of of Australia compared to the UK, right? But um, that's insane. Well, when I started having a lot of Skype calls to uh, with the UK, I I've, I've been planning to to retire for a few years and um, travel around Australia. That what what we call here the big lap, you know, that's um, twenty five thousand right. kilometer road trip around the country. Amazing. And, um, yeah, so but I've had this. I've got this massive map. It's probably three by two meters, and I had it have it had it up against the wall behind me. And uh, what I did is I put a scaled map of the UK on it, and just to show how you guys how insignificant you really were. <laughs> <laughs> we need that from time to time, <laughs> I think, in this country. Oh, but um, wowzers! Well, that's uh, that's amazing. Well, it looks looks like a lovely day, and uh, I hope that we can get some of that that comes our way at some point soon. But uh, it's early January. It's New Year's been and gone. How uh, yeah. how's the New Year been for you so far, John? Yeah, a slow start to it. Um, you know, it's a it's a, it's a big year uh, ahead because we've got you know a big product launch and a few things happening and uh, some new stuff happening um, on the. Um, so it's the HRA front, you know, the health risk assessment, which is, uh, occupies a lot of my time in sort of algorithm development, statistics and so on. Um, sure. So the idea is try and, you know, get through that as quickly as possible and, um, yeah, start to, you know, I'm 64 in a couple of weeks. So um, I need to start taking a bit of time back for myself and uh, get a bit of travel under my belt. And uh, yeah. But, yeah, yes, last year's work, I didn't begrudge it at all because you know we've been in lockdown for most of the year so i wasn't going anywhere i may as well you know uh, do a bit of work earn a bit of cash and uh, expand my uh, you know 
learning horizons a bit. It's all good fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned there about traveling as well. It sounds great, by the way. Happy birthday in advance of a couple of weeks' time. Um, <laughs> but uh, traveling, I guess, for you in the past has always been mainly related to work uh, as opposed to, you know, business yeah. or pleasure type of question. Yeah. Look, we... Um, I suppose you do a lot of travel within Australia because it's big and there's a lot of great stuff to see. And, of course, the rest of the world is a long way away from us. Uh, you always envy you Brits, you know, get across the channel and you've got, you know, 20 countries to visit. And uh, so, you know, I've been to uh, actually twice in my life I've worked for French companies, um, both AXA back in um, – 19 from 1999 to 2002 um, ah. I worked for them and uh, I attended the Chateau Cantonac Brown in Bordeaux, Bordeaux which is the AXA Management University uh, in France there and uh, and then I worked for a core for a while because uh, they owned an EAP business um, which also owned us um, the wellness arm and I think during that time I probably visited France six times to do various courses and you know management training uh, meet with the, the bosses and so on and uh, by the time my uh, son actually got to the world um, world youth athletics championships in Lille in France uh, we were heading over and I realized I'd been there six or maybe seven times my wife had never been so right. it was a bit of a shock so I, I had a great great fun being her tour, tour guide to yeah. do the greatest hits of Paris and all that sort of stuff. But you realise when you pick up all your travel in, uh, in as part of work, uh, it's, um, there's half of you that didn't see it. That's your, that's your, your partner. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So when you come to do some travelling later on, uh, what is what is your plan in terms of – assuming that you can travel, um, are you going to stay within Australia or are you planning to – where are you planning to visit? Yeah, look, we'll knock out a bit, of, a bit more international stuff. Uh, we've done a lot of um, – uh, Europe, but we would like to do some it's a bit of out there stuff down Patagonia and out to the Antarctic. And um, but wow. uh, certainly, there's bits of there's still some unexplored Europe. You know, haven't done, done Spain and Portugal yet. Uh, done a lot of the, um, you know, Germany, France, Austria, Switzerland, and um, you know, around the Mediterranean, Greek Isles, and everything. But um, you know, I've got a, a nephew that's uh, he worked as a lawyer in London for two years, and uh, he saw you know, more in <laughs> two years than I'll, than I'll see in a lifetime because it was, you know, a quick long weekend over in a European country and, you know, travel to Epinay, sip some champagne, you know, come back for work Monday. What a life. In yeah. But, yeah, most of the, a lot of the travel will be um, uh, around Australia. The, um, it's a bit of, we call them grey nomads here. I don't know whether you're familiar with the term, but uh, the country is full of retired Aussies that get a, get a van and spend uh, and rent the house out. Um, and just, uh, you can easily spend two or three years heading around this place. Um, I've done a lot of the big bits that, you know, the giant Kimberley up north of West Australia and uh, the, um, and, you know, up around the Great Barrier Reef and, uh in March, we're off to Tassie, which is um, quite quite a small little isle down the bottom, and uh, that's the sort of thing you can knock over in four to six weeks quite easily. But uh, yeah, a bit of a mix. But um, you know, if it all comes to an end tomorrow, I've been I'll, I'll have seen a good deal of the world, but I would like to tick off a few more boxes. Jeez, yeah, I need to uh, just listening to you talk through that. I need to sort myself out. I've only been 
to travel to a certain number of places, some kind of cool places, uh, India and South Africa, but relatively speaking, not that many places, certainly compared to that. That sounds incredible. So, um, yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, the work one was uh, I'd spent four years working for a company called Alia, um, who are quite they're famous in the health field for their invention of the handheld glucometer right so right. In, and so the the device that tests blood yeah. glucose and so the handheld of course changed diabetes management forever because everyone got you know they weren't using urine dipsticks anymore and finding out that the the, the renal threshold to spillover of glucose is about 11 millimoles so by the time you pick it up in your urine you're well and truly you know on your way uh, up in into the high zone so um, obviously the finger prick checks were uh, pretty handy. Um, so they um, they invented that. So I think they sold it off to Abbott for about $1.1, $1.2 billion, then made a better one, sold that to Roche for about $1.3 billion <laughs> and so yeah. on. But during that time, we had a quarterly conference in somewhere in Asia Pac. So four, four, 16, I did 16 trips to, you know, Vietnam and Malaysia and, uh, you know, and Thailand and all that sort of stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't have seen much of... Um, much of Asia, but that was uh, that was quite uh, quite useful. That sounds incredible, incredible, John. Well, I mean, it sounds like even before we were talking, before we clicked record today on the podcast, uh, in terms of travel and in terms of things, it sounds to me as though you've uh, you've kind of been there and done it, John. In terms of travel, in terms of work, you've spent I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty much your entire working life in kind of health and well being related fields. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. The uh, the quick sort of snapshot you know, timeline is, uh, you know, I actually began playing as a professional musician when I was still late high school, and it was uh, quite a funny situation doing the, you know, what we call here our HSC, you know, exams, our final year of before we go to university, and I was right. doing my maths and physics exams during the day and fronting up to play uh, lead guitar in flight at the Eureka Stockade on a, on of an evening, and then coming back to study and doing the next exam the next day, and then off to, you know, jam with the uh, the band again, so. That was um, that was what I had planned to do, uh, but of course, the thing that stopped me was I wasn't very good at it, and so <laughs> eking out a living as a professional musician is a tough gig. And yes. I suppose I saw a, a lot of people, a lot of way better guitarists than I would ever dream of being, and they were out, they were struggling to make a living, and I thought I have no right to be here. I'll create space for one of them, but. Um, the decision was sort of made for me because my uh, lead singer in the band, who was an absolute gun singer, she uh, picked up a better guitarist. She got a guy called Peter Frampton. So, oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, oh. I, don't, I don't know whether you've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> wow. Yeah. So what happened? So, so I abandoned uh, music, uh, went and uh, because of the sporting background, I did um, you know a, a sports science degree. Uh, that was four years because it included a B.Ed., you know, teaching degree. So I went into, uh, I became a high school phys ed and maths teacher for a couple of years. And um, I suppose the thought of fronting up to a bunch of screaming, screaming school kids every day for the rest of my working life was, um, you know, a bit a bridge too far. So I thought I'd, um, I'd failed at music. I wasn't a very good teacher. So I thought I'll try this, um, this academic thing. So um, went back to uni, uh, traveled over to Canada, did my master's degree in um, exercise science there that's the muscle hypertrophy work and then finished up another five years with a phd out of the medical faculty at monash university uh, down in melbourne and um and i was uh, all ready for a you know 
plan C, which is the academic career. And I had a postdoc lined up at the Muscle Research Institute in Oslo in Norway. And uh, the guy I was working with, um, Dirk Petty, actually died unexpectedly of a heart attack. So my mentor and uh, the guy I was supposed to be working with, that, that put an end to that. And, um, and that's where, you know, just a little sort of decision that while I was cooling my heels, waiting to pick up a postdoctoral fellowship somewhere in the world, um, I started out a little business in workplace health and uh, in the next four or five years it had turned into the largest worksite wellness business in the uh, in the country. And that was, um, yeah, I think we registered that business on the 14th of October 1986. So um, that's now, you know, getting on to 40, uh, what is it, 35 years, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 40 years. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, I think you, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the failure of the music career. I think if you're if you're superseded, if that's the right word, by someone like Peter Frampton. If, the, if, yeah. if he's next in line after you, I'm not sure. <laughs> that's a that's a huge failure, to be honest. But uh, yeah. do you still do you still play like in a oh, band separately or you can, I can you'll see... probably see the background of yeah. uh, the good thing about being a, su a successful businessman as opposed to an unsuccessful musician is my instruments are way better than they ever used to be so <laughs> <laughs> I but, um, yeah look I, you know i was so full-on into academia and then uh, work you know running uh, the wellness businesses etc um i i didn't actually play for a, a long time and uh as a, a gift uh you know sort of post I forget what might have been the 40th or something, my, um, or maybe 30th. My wife bought me a guitar, uh, which is the first one I'd owned for a while, and um, you know, just fell in love with it all over again. And uh, then when I hit 40, uh, my family said to me, you know, well, 40s are, you know, it's a multiple of 10, it's a big one. What do we want to do? And I thought, like, I'll go for the Blues Brothers theme, get the band back together. And so we tracked down all of the uh, band members from the, the late 70s, this was. So the band was quite prolific. You know, we were playing professionally four nights a week through 1976, 77, 78. And, um, tracked them all down um, and did one night only at a, at a venue in Melbourne. And because we'd played together for many years and you know when you're playing professionally four nights a week you imagine how many times we played some of those so songs they just end up in the dna of your fingers and you never forget them they're just rote learned you know and never to be lost and so we did 26 of the uh, old numbers unrehearsed after 20 year a 20 year no break and, wow. uh, and we just had such a ball and we uh, vowed to do it every decade since so uh, did it again from the 50th and on the 60th we went did the freshwater um, surf lifesaving club gig up here in sydney i flew them all up and uh, had a, an absolute ball once again and um, yeah just a you know, it's something probably the event I look most forward to every so often is that that one thing. And um, but I do have a, a, I've had a few other bands in between. You know, it's all just old blokes doing old covers and trying to relive their youth. And uh, you know, but we're all uh, successful businessmen, so we all all have good instruments and good amplifiers. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we do sound okay. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. I mean, John, we've you and I have chatted many times over the uh, I guess over the a small number of years, I suppose, but this is uh, this is partly why I wanted to kind of try and delve into a little bit just your backstory, really, how where you've uh, your journey, where you started, where you've now come to, because uh, you, you know 
you're some somewhat of a of an enigma it turns out you're a secret amazing musician i appreciate you've got a form of an athletic background as well which i'll let you explore plus a range of other things so in fact let's just let's just think about that for a moment in terms of uh, john lang the hidden athlete yep okay. so, so, so look story? i was uh, i wasn't a bad athlete as a, a young fellow i sort of um i probably peaked at the age of maybe 11 or 12 with some state titles and some um, national placings in would you believe high jump um and this was pre-flop like i was you know uh, scissors and eastern cutoffs and, and straddles right. and things and um, <laughs> wasn't a bad discus thrower state level in that uh, but uh, um, I actually was quite good at hockey. I made the, uh, the state teams through under 12, 14, 16, and uh, made some Australian All-Stars teams. These are honorary teams that never actually play. They just nominate them at the, the, at the right. end of the tournament. Hmm. And, uh, but, uh, of course, by the time I got to 17, 18, um, wine, women and song had taken over. So uh, it was um, it was hard to keep up. A, you know, I'd played, you know, a grade open men's or state league hockey from the age of 15. So by the time I was 17 and not turning up to training and being dropped, you know, I thought, well, the hockey days are over. Uh, and then, um, so then my, uh, my big comeback was uh, in the first year of uni, I entered a, just a novelty event that was called the Ugly Dive. And uh, in the Ugly Dive, of course, it's the exact opposite of a normal platform diving you've got to do the ugliest dive you can and with a, a it's all judged by proper judges and uh, and everything but it usually results in a lot of pain because um you know belly whackers are almost a, a fait accompli when you're looking ugly you can't have any any semblance of good entry and uh so anyway i, I won that the first year i then backed up the second year third year and fourth year so by the time i got to uh, out to my first year teaching after that four years of university, um, I was actually the only person that had ever won the event because I won the inaugural one, the next three. And so <laughs> I got, got rung up by the, um, the convener of the competition, you know, the whole, you know, it's athletics and swimming and all uh, all sports at the uni games, Australian uni games. And uh, he said, John, we'd like to invite you to be, be give a guest ugly dive at the um you know because you're you're the four-time you know grand slammer here and uh so they actually flew me up to sydney from melbourne put me up in a hotel and uh no way. i got to go up on the um the 10 meter tower um stripped naked uh turned my back to the audience i had a sheet of our daily newspaper called the age which oh i scrunched God. up shoved between the cheeks of my butt and uh <laughs> then lit it with a lit it with a, a lighter turned with the back to the audience let it burned down halfway and then I did a you know one and a half back salt belly whacker with the flaming newspaper up the butt and um I didn't get a medal for that because it was a you know it was an honorary thing but it sort of went down in uh, in history a little bit as a you know one of the best ever did you keep so, the news did you keep the newspaper or did it you know did it burn through enough of it that it wasn't um you know, no, I think it was uh, sort of obliterated in the, uh, in the, <laughs> at the, at the end of the day. But um, no, it was a bit of fun. And then I think that was um, that was it. Uh, you know, later on in life, I did take up um, distance running. I, I sort of got into that during my masters because I was at the time. Um, you got to remember this is back in the late seventies and early eighties, early to mid eighties. Um, I think masters was eighty. Uh, one to 83 and um 
carbo loading had come in would you believe right <laughs> big, yeah. big thing and uh well that's interesting so i i became my own guinea pig for that and uh, was trying out all the you know the techniques and um as it, the upshot was i ended up running 19 marathons so i did probably seven or eight triathlons and uh, you know the thousands of or hundreds of uh, you know fun runs and things and um yeah the um and to this for the last 10 years i've been trying to run my 20th marathon but you know the old uh, joints um, don't hang together as well as they used to in fact um one of those uh, australian championships i did um run into a steeplechase during a 3000 meter steeplechase event and i ripped the uh, posterior cruciate off the bone so i've got no oh. no cruciate in my posterior cruciate in my left leg that 20 years later resulted in the you know major damage to the cartilages which are now out and um but look i've been running marathons and snow skiing water skiing and doing all that like with no pain and suffering uh, for you know <laughs> for 40 years so i'm not not complaining in the least um but it when I try and load it up with uh, get up to you know 100 100 plus k's of training to get a decent marathon time, it's just not at 60 plus, and with the uh, the pre-existing in or the existing injury, then uh, it's probably just a stupid thing to do. So I think I've given up on that now. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I appreciate. Is there maybe an opportunity to do like a you know a series of smaller ones that you can just accumulate the distance or something and then and then claim a marathon distance to count that 20th uh, do you know what i mean uh yeah look i ended up doing a lot of half marathons because you know you train training for the full one that that falls apart a bit and so you just drop back to the half and um they've been a lot of fun you know i've, I've done 19 marathons and uh 19 times i've said never again so it's not <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, and the reason for doing a lot of one of the reasons that my first one was a 408 and um, which was after the euphoria of finishing your first marathon subsides and you look at the time you think holy shit that's terrible I don't want that against my name so I trained up a bit bigger and better the following year and um, lost about eight or nine kilos and ran a 308 so I took an hour off an hour then, off yeah that's, yeah, a, but, that's mental so then, of course, the thing that happens is you look at that 308 and you think, wow, I'm eight minutes away from the, you know, <laughs> the illustrious sub three. So you know, it took me eight goes to go sub three. So I've got a bunch of 202, oh, 252, 253 and 254s. Um, one of them's in uh, that one. Uh, you can probably see that one in the corner. It's Hawaii. Right. Yeah. Got the Ironman, but the marathon. So uh, Amazing. I love that. I love that. You you, you know, most people are happy if they talk about taking, you know, shaving a couple of minutes off their marathon time and stuff, but one hour off your marathon time, John, that's, yeah. that's why. That's only because the first one was so bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's relative, right? Um, yeah. Before we, before we kind of continue, I'm, I'm too, I'm far too interested uh, in this ugly diving. I want to go back to that. Um, oh. When you're late, you're probably... <laughs> No pun intended here, but one of the most decorated ugly divers, I guess, of the of of uh, of Australia for sure. But uh, when you're lining up, uh, you're thinking of doing an ugly dive from how top, how high would you normally do this from? It's always always ten meters. Always ten meters. How do you plan that? Do you just go oh, for it, or do you, do you do you do you choreograph it in any way? Oh What's yeah, the yeah, thought yeah. Process? It's, Look, it's. I think um, what I did the first year. Um, was the theatrics right we uh the, 
the uni I was going to, our uh, our club colours were red and uh, the famous, you know, red tracksuits that we wore. And so that one was, I got together with a, another guy, uh, Mike Cotillius, and he, um, I had him on my shoulders and we got a, a long sort of dressing gown and draped it over him and down over me. Now I had four uh, water polo balls stuffed into the leg of a red tracksuit. And so we were both um, there and he covered up with the uh, the long the big dressing gown walked up to the edge of the 10 meter tower and it was just open up and i popped out the one leg of the tracksuit stuffed with four so it was a giant <laughs> flash right this is it was a meter and a half long penis from the 10 meter tower with two people and then we ugly dove into the water all the other people doing it were actually um just jumping off in their speedos doing ugly things, you know, um, you know, porpoises and birds and ballywhackers and things. And uh, we added that theatric component. So, you know, each year I just added a bit to the theatre. Um, and uh, of course, and the fifth one with the, the burning, the flaming newspaper and everything just you know, kept it off nicely. But, you know, the competitors started to realise you can't just dive ugly here. You've got to have a, you know, a bit of a story to tell. And uh, they got more you know, sort of grain. Um, uh, one more. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So halftime of the water polo, the the final of the water polo is between my university, Rusden, and the um, and the ACPE, which is the Australian College of Physical Education. Uh, we were three one down at halftime, and then the ugly dive came, and we uh, quickly rearranged things. So this was now a team of. Um, I think 14 and we got the uh, got the girls with the red lipstick and we actually got them to write the letters on our you know untanned white backsides <laughs> in big big red lipstick the ACPE sucks cocks right in single letters <laughs> and uh, anyway so that guy Mike Cotillius I mentioned from the first one he um, he grabbed the, uh, the microphone and became the commentator. And it was like country Joe McDonald at Woodstock, you know, give me an F, give me a U. Well, this is give me an A, give me a C. It was A-C-P-E-S-U-C-K-S. And so this was on the at ground level, A-C-P-E, five metre tower, S-U-C-K-S, 10 metre tower, C-O-C-K-S. And then 14 of us all went off together in an ugly dive. And, uh, and it was very ugly, but... Um, <laughs> We end up winning the water polo 6-3. They never scored a goal after that. And um, so it, it was had the intended job. But, so that's a bit of the theatrics around uh, around the um, the ugly dive. There you go. I'm glad you've been so interested in that. Oh, I love it. I just think that's just uh, – I don't know why I'm so interested in that. It's probably just appealing to my uh, younger self, which never left, I suppose. But um, uh, wow, that's, that's amazing. Why don't we do more of that in the UK? I, the last time – I don't remember the last time I heard a story like that from originating within within the within the UK. Not to not to generalise or, or make a stereotype here, but um, I think I need to come to Australia at some point and experience some of this. This sounds amazing. Yeah, well, we look at you guys as you know the funniest people on the planet. You know, I thought you were, would have been right into that sort of stuff. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, into it, but you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe I just I haven't explored it enough within within the UK, but. Uh, originality is the key i think here john that's you know based on what you're saying there that sounds amazing especially if you're getting to the point where uh in order to to continue the trend you've, you've had to shove a newspaper up your ass basically it's <laughs> 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 amazing um yeah, could be worse <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not go there <laughs> for sure oh geez john um wow okay so what have we got we've got musician 
uh, we've got athlete, we've got you who've spent 40 years now in the kind of um, health related fields, whether that's corporate healthcare, muscle hypertrophy, which is something I'm, I'm really keen on, I want to come back to. But um, with everything that's going on, John, actually, especially at this time, uh, at this stage of the uh, of the year with everything, um, what's going on for you now? What's on the What's the project on the cards? Um, what's new for, for you? Yeah, well, look, in uh, 2014, I sort of retired from big business, you know, where I was the CEO or managing director of a, of a, a wellness business. Um, and that was to, you know, just start to, to, start to slow down but not withdraw. And um, because the, uh, the I mentioned the undergrad degree sports science, I did a double major, including mathematics and statistics. And so there was this... Um, the part of me, you know, I've always loved the, the science of numbers and, and stats and everything. And of course, with the, the PhD in a, in a medical field, um, the, uh, the combine the two, I got into, you know, predictive algorithms and uh, started generating or doing a bit of work um, doing these HRAs, health risk assessments, and particularly things like health age HRAs, which are you know, done for for Axel, you know, probably the best one in the world. And um, we did a whole lot of quite creative stuff, added in some uh, got to work in the area of dallies you know which is instead of just looking at life expectancy disability adjusted life years so you know as we, we often say you know people don't want to live to be 100 years old if the last 20 years are with uh, you know uh, incontinence and dementia and severe arthritic pain you know you'd rather uh, just go for 85 and die in your sleep sort of thing healthy right. and so mm. this um whole thing of the, um, you know, disability-free life expectancy became, you know, part of my um, raison d'etre, I think they call it in French or something. Um, the, uh, so, you know, in Australia, it's a classic situation about life expectancy for a male uh, at birth is around about 80 years, of which about 92% is disability-free. So there's 8% spent with disability. And uh, that's not all at the end. It's largely at the end, but you can, you know, your whole life is punctuated by bits of disability, you know, on occasion. Um, if you're unlucky enough to suffer depression, of course, that could be punctuated a lot from an early age, and it's certainly a lot more than 8% of your, your life expectancy. But um, so I started working in that area um, as well, because that seemed like a better, something that was more sellable to the public, not to live longer, but to live um you know, healthier, longer. And uh, so if you if you look at something like exercise, you know, uh, if you follow the exercise guidelines and add in your, you know, your strength and flexibility to your cardiovascular and everything, uh, you expect to roughly halve that 8%, right? And yeah. so yeah. that's an extra 4% of disability-free life years. It only adds, so it adds, you know, three to four years onto your disability-adjusted Life just, use, but it just, only just, had... just through the amendment of exercise and activity. That's the main thing. Ex yeah. That's right. Exercise versus non-exercise. You, you're picking up, you pick up, but the the odd thing is, you only pick up one to two years of additional life expectancy. But you pick up, you add to that the you know, three, four, five years of um, of disability-free life expectancy. That's a net gain of you know six, six, seven mm, years. Right. Um, but it's not all in life expectancy. It's the additional quality of life that's the big gain, not the extended life life expectancy. So you're just spending fewer years in, you know, with pain and suffering and disability. So, uh, so that was, um, you know, I did a, a lot of, was into that a bit. I had done some, 
some very early sort of seminal work in that area. And, you know, I came about it, uh, here's a, a fascinating story that I was only reminded of, um, you know, a couple of months back, but I was, it must have been 2001, 2002, I was working for a, a company. I'll just look at the business card up there. Um, I won't mention the name. <laughs> yeah. And... They they ran a uh, an arm in medico legal consulting, and so you know they had you know forty or fifty specialists like these are top 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 of the range university professors who are surgeons and everything, and they would be hired out as hired guns to uh, go give uh, expert testimony in court cases, right? So anyway, the head of this uh, this company approached me and said, "Look, John, we've got a um, this couple." ultra wealthy right they've they're separating uh and there's a dispute over the uh you know the assets sort of thing and he's uh said he will give a you know x amount uh, annually to the day she dies she's saying well i want it as a lump sum so therein is the problem how many years is he going to fund if it's up front not yeah. as you go and right. uh so anyway, they multiplied that amount by, you know, the annual amount by the, her life expectancy straight off the actuarial tables, you know, um, taking her current age and gender into account. Anyway, she turned around and said, well, you know, look at me. I'm a, a very fit and healthy woman. I'm, uh, I'm going to outlive the average by a long way. And so anyway, the guy, um, the head of the business came to me and said, John, the, it would be really handy if we could predict life expectancy here. <laughs> you know, you've got any ideas? I said, okay, well, I'm a you know, mathematician, statistician, mathematician. I know my health and the numbers extremely well. I can, I can do this. Uh, give me a couple of days. And so I put it together knowing that it would be, this is going to go to court, you know, and I may have to stand up as an expert witness. So I wrote it up, you know, very, very professionally. Anyway, submitted it to their lawyers. Their lawyers got, you know, a few of the, you know, professorial types, you know, around and they, they reviewed it all. And uh, because I had a pick that plus nine years above the, uh, remembering standard deviation here is plus seven, so plus or minus seven. So nine years is more than a standard deviation above the mean. That was a conservative estimate within certain confidence limits. But um Anyway, they came back. They said, "Okay, they've agreed to settle out of court, uh, pay the extra nine years, done deal." And uh, when I sort of followed up, it was the these uh, two or three expert people the opposition had um, couldn't pick any holes in my arguments, you know, about calculation of life expectancy. Oh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. That's they wild. are saying that my, you know, calculations are valid, and they couldn't refute them in a court of law. And so, uh, so that gave me a bit of confidence that uh, if if that did, if if it got through that test, uh, there's probably something to it. So I started dabbling in that for mostly the businesses that I owned and operated or was CEO of, and uh, so I did a lot of that sort of thing. Then eventually branched out a bit. I think there's probably thirty. 25, 30 companies around the world on every continent that uh, use my algorithms, you know, you know, in their HRAs to, to at some some point to some degree, and that um, that's an interesting 
you know, sort of bit of business because that's licensing um, uh, algorithms on a global intellectual property market. So it, it can create yeah. a nice little ongoing revenue stream even when you're not working. So there you go, a little bit, bit of a tip for the future, Dan. Uh, thanks for that. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll try yeah. to try to remember that one. Yeah. Um, so, so so that takes us back to your original question: Is what am I doing now? Well, most yeah. of the work is still doing that sort of HRA algorithm development work, but we're now, of course, working a lot more in the mental health space and everything. And, um, and of course, the last four years, as you, as you know, I think the, um, I'm after my, uh, is, is a Hail Mary pass a thing in the UK? Do you know what that is? Yeah, I, yeah, I know what it is, but I don't think it's yeah, in, in American football, they call the Hail Mary pass, you know, when the quarterback goes back and he throws the 70 right. metre Hail Mary, hoping it's going to fall into the arms of the wide receiver or something. Or, yeah. And um, that's that one last ditch effort for, for <laughs> greatness. And, um, so what I've been working on for four years is something called SHAPE, the Survey for Health, Absence, Productivity, Engagement. And it's, um, it's my Hail Mary. So, uh, and what it is essentially i've worked a lot in physical and mental health developed algorithms and audit tools and interventions and all that sort of stuff very successfully over many decades but i always felt that we were you know helping people to get back on track physically and mentally they go back into that toxic work environment with a shitty manager who doesn't understand the impact of a long working hours culture and this and that and of course they just get beat up again by a bad bad people in a bad environment and we always felt impotent in in dealing with that because we were um we weren't part of the main game right so shape um incorporates now 12 elements so we've got physical and psychological health but we've got culture we've got engagement we've got management style we've got the physical ohs and the physical work environment we've got the soft work environment the it and the resources component we've got work-life balance and factors outside of work so it's a real uh, full-blown broad brush look at everything that can infect, affect an individual's performance at work. So it sort of travels over the territory of uh, EAP, OH&S, wellness, SORC, psych, employee performance, management training, um, you know, um, and that, I think, for me, it's going to get me past that, or the, the impasse that we had to, when we're just dealing with physical and psychological health and don't have a seat at the main table about engagement and culture in organisations when we can't affect the change we want. So this is uh, what I've been working on for four years. It probably or hopefully launches next month and uh, very excited because it should absolutely revolutionize this space uh, right. if um, if it takes off you know fingers well, crossed absolutely fingers crossed it's the first version of a tool basically for at least from my perspective as well that i've heard of that looks to bring so many different elements of as you as you say productivity work culture um sort of health age is rooted within this like tool as well health is in there for, for sure it's not the um not you know, as um, comprehensive as you would get in a full-blown HRA. But, you know, let's face it, The um, if I want to be minimal, minimalist about it, uh, the keys to good health, eat well, keep fit, manage stress, don't smoke and get adequate sleep, you know, bingo. There's uh, not many. I can't believe I went to university for four years to, you know, learn that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and this is probably another aspect of, you know, my evolution in the wellness business. We realised a long time ago, as you would know, you know, telling people what to do is, doesn't achieve much. You need to understand the, you know, the behavioural 
drivers. And you know, so we do a lot of work in you know behaviour change and behaviour behavioural strategies. Um, do a lot of work with the trans theoretical model of behaviour change, and uh, you know, really try and build programs that are uh, reflective of and um, subservient to the models that we know work. And you know, I've we've published studies that show that you know appropriate application of the trans theoretical model doubles, triples, or even quadruples the likelihood of successful behavior change. So why would you not go there? Um, so when it yeah. comes to the, when it comes to the mental health element of the health age, uh, HRA, John, I, I appreciate, I guess, potentially correct me if I'm wrong, potentially it's easier when you've got things like smoking, I don't know, cholesterol, blood pressure, because these are all objective measures, right? By which you can, yep use as a yardstick but when you've got mental health which is you know anything stress anxiety depression yeah. just give me just give me an idea i guess of how how you take something like that which is i guess in some ways very subjective but build that into a tool that's yeah. going to help to predict someone's health yeah. span for example sure well look as I just flippantly pointed out, you know, health is uh, well keep fit. <laughs> Many right. stress don't smoke. In stress, there's um, something called a SISC. I don't know S I S Q. It's called a single item yeah. stress questionnaire, yeah. and it's simply asking someone scale of one to ten. You know, how much stress do you feel? Now, that single question gives you sixty to seventy percent of the uh, predictive value of a full blown you know, um, something like a core 10 or a DAS or a, you know, STAI, a state trade anxiety inventory, et cetera. So it's, you know, people, if you ask them, you know, just that simple question, they've got a pretty good, uh, going to give a pretty accurate response. What it doesn't give you is a lot of insight as to what, why, and uh, therefore it doesn't give you a lot of insight into how you might support, you know, an intervention or give them guidance, et cetera. That's why we go with um, other stuff. But the value of the, sort of mental health um, explorer we call it in shape is um, we not only look at you know the depression stress anxiety symptoms we look at sources of stress we look at um, techniques people use their effectiveness or or ineffectiveness and um, you know physical mental you know behavioral symptoms etc so we build up a really good image of what's going on in that person's world from that psychosocial psycho-emotional perspective but that is one of 12 explorers you put that within the context of their work culture the data on bullying and harassment their the management style the and um and the adequate training support um you know the commitment pyramid you know we 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 say that um you know to have committed employees, you essentially need at the base of the pyramid safety and security. So, it's it's Maslow's hierarchy all over again. So, safe and secure safety from being bullied and harassed, but security of tenure and income, etc. There's reward and remuneration. There's affiliation. You know, feeling part of the team. Your opinion matters. You listen to uh, growth. You know, uh, where to from here? Is there a pathway within your organisation onwards and upwards? Is it catered for and nurtured? And you get up to the um, the Maslow equivalent of self-actualization, which is work-life harmony. So can you do all that in your work and still have a life outside of work? If you can't answer that question, if you can't say yes to that, you're missing out on, you know, the right. Maslow equivalent of the tip of the pyramid, which is what we all should aspire to, to do. And so all that's built in. But when you look at someone's mental health amongst 11 other explorers, you start to realize the power of integrated data. Now, normally it would take 
probably four or five different providers, you know, your EAP and OH&S people, your org psych, your culture mm -hmm. experts and everything, all yeah. doing different things. And guess what? They don't speak to each other. Their data is siloed, no common um, unifiers to integrate the data across those data sets. So they can never do the multi-dimensional um, analytics to see the, the real, often more complex picture. And that we believe is the you know the real value that lies in there. Uh, what is, when we look at that someone's mental health, how does it relate to all those other factors? What are the drivers? And you can start to really um, unpick the the realities of what's going on there. So I guess that your hope then for this for the shape tool in this case, when you're bringing together all this data, is to what is it to unite the different providers underneath for workplaces? What's your I guess what's your personal aspiration really for for this in the in the longer term? Yeah, yeah look, the there's a few things that we sort of built into it that um, for me, you know, it's not just a survey; it is a, an intervention in its own right because it does give you results, recommendations, best practice guidelines. But some of the interesting things, and you know, if you put yourself in this situation. You're a member of a team, you have a boss that sits above you, he has a boss. And uh, But when your company, all the employees do the, the SHAPE survey, you can see your results, your overall result for the SHAPE survey, a single score out of 100. You can see the 12 Explorer results. You can drill down to individual question level results. But you can see that not only for you, you can see it for your team. So if you are you know, completely disengaged, for example, you're scoring 22 out of 100 on the Engagement Explorer, uh, but you notice that the uh, team score is 80, 82. You're an outlier here, and there has you have to look at the questions, the individual questions. Say, why am I different here? What's driving this? Um, and of course, the manager sees not only the his personal results, sees the team's results, and so this can now become the topic of discussion at team meetings. Where where are our where are our weak point weak points in terms of job satisfaction of members of my team, the commitment of employees to the company, the engagement with me as their their, their leader, etc. Um, and so it puts the manager in as a you know potentially a great position to be a facil facilitator, but. One of the great, the best things about good cultures is transparency. And so what um, mm. the, as a, a lowly employee, Dan, you know, you can actually um, not only see your the results of your peers in your team, not individually, of course, just aggregated, but because you can see the team result, you can also see the, um, the guidance that's been given to your team manager. And you need to look right. at that and say, well, if my manager doesn't act on these things that are undermining uh, you know, physical mental health of team members, performance and productivity, absence and claims and all this sort of stuff. He's, he's not doing his job. So if I feel strong enough about it, I will, you know, I'll raise it at a team meeting and say, look, you know, we've got these shitty results in our XYZ explorers. We've got some, been given some guidelines. They make sense to us. When are we going? You know, so there's that multi-level accountability up and down. And of course, the executive gets uh, all the executives <clears throat> in the high, highest level. They, of course, you know, can do big things on the culture side of things. They can yeah. alter and, and review and adapt uh, policies and uh, practices, procedures, and start to the trickle down effect from top down while employees are pushing bottom up. But I've never seen you know anything in my life like this that uh, has in includes all the information from all the players so that they can all see the role that each other's play playing in this. And so that to me is a very powerful, you know, cattle change catalyst.
Absolutely. We, we, when you mentioned about the higher level ranking, the CEOs, MDs, managers, even at that point, um, it's hard to see, it's hard to think of a lot of examples, at least of where like a culture within a well-being has been knowingly transformed or attempted to be transformed uh, because the person or the group at the top have decided they're going to change things. When you take these kind of larger corporations and businesses and so on, who are maybe stuck in their ways, they've done it for, you know, generations or, or what or what have you, things just don't tend to change very easily. And I guess that's where the 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 idea for this tool came from. But for you, what's the I can see the buy-in for quite a for quite a few different levels here within a business. But if you're trying to what would you say is the buy-in for the people at the top of the chain? Uh, <laughs> to take part in this because if they're going to start to expose themselves data wise and results and so on what's the big benefit to them do you think yeah well look you can take the the mercenary approach and bring it all back to numbers so you know sitting within shape is a very uh, sophisticated calculation engine you know took me a few years to grind it out but um yeah. we can link uh all those explorers to changes in, you know, productivity, presenteeism, absence, um, staff turnover. You know, obviously, you know, poor managers and bad cultures have higher staff turnover. And in the UK, I think you, you know, at the the at the the bottom decile, you, you're averaging over thirty percent per annum, you know, employee turnover at the right. the top decile, the ninetieth percentile, you're averaging more like three to four percent. Now that means the difference between best and worst company is is huge when you look yeah. at turning over a third of your staff unnecessarily. So there is a figure you can attach to that as you can for, you know, uh, claims, you know, um, you know, mental health claims are huge all over the, you know, the industrialized world in particular. And um, so we calculate the, the, you know, the likely benefit on all those areas of, um, I think we call it, <laughs> the acronym is CRAP. <laughs> so it's, right. uh, <laughs> um, C-R-A-P. So, uh, Retention, absenteeism, productivity, and claims. Okay, so CR claims, retention, absence, and productivity, and um, and that is down to um, we don't report at individual level that because uh, it's far too granular to be individual, um, and we don't want to put a dollar value on an individual's contribution like that because it doesn't doesn't make sense. It only makes sense on bigger numbers, but um, we do do it at um, for hours of productivity gained at individual level. And you know our message to people is okay if we, if you, if these things improve at your workspace uh, and elements of shape uh, are improved by management, you, etc., and you, uh, you know, pick up a you know, hundred hours of extra productivity through presenteeism effects over the, the twelve months. Well, that's two and a half weeks of time. Take a week for yourself, give a week to the company, and uh, everyone wins, you know, sort of thing. So it's not so that you can just continually to work longer and harder. Achieving more in less uh, allows you to uh, at least, you know, look at that life balance situation more positively. Um, so that's the mercenary pr approach, reducing it down to numbers. But, you know, a lot of senior managers these days are right into uh, employer of choice, good corporate citizenship. It is this just the right thing to do. And, and good autumn, you know, they, um, they regardless of the economic uh, uh, and financial outcomes and so there's certainly that aspect of it and there's look really interesting data if you look at the um the companies that have won the you know the best places to work uh, mm. awards in the us they um 
or and in particular the best wellness programs, they actually outperform the uh, the Fortune 500 index by around about two and a half to threefold over a period of 14, 15 years. So that's a massive difference. That's that's stock yeah, market. Yeah, that's value. huge. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, you read about this in a wellness magazine, and it would you'd be led to believe that wellness is doing the job, <laughs> but. Wellness just happens to be something that good companies do or that they do well. And so good companies get a lot of these other shaped things in line, you know, all the good management practices, the good, the good, you know, cultural, everything from senior management policy level stuff through to walking the talk at the uh, middle level through to actionable stuff at grassroots level. And it's all those other, you know, 10 or 11 explorers that are uplifted by good um, good companies, good cultures and good managers that are delivering a great uh, outcome, stock market outcome. Wellness programs happen to be a biomarker okay, right. of those. Yeah. So they're not, you know, we're, we're over overplaying our, you know, the magnitude of our impact if we're claiming all that upside is just due to the fact that people, you know, did 150 minutes of exercise a week and ate more fruit. But, um, you know, it's that's why shape is, I think, the right the tool for the age because it does look at all those things together and very rarely does that happen. So it's kind of, you're, you know, you're hoping maybe to transform, I guess, the, the health, I'm not using health as in physical health here, but the health of an organization from grassroots right to the top. You've got people at the bottom who are going to be uh, better off potentially as a result of this kind of intervention and then the changes within. And then right at the top, I guess, financially speaking, money talking, you're potentially going to see big improvements that way around as well. So, Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, look, it's, um, yeah, this is all algorithm based and to some degree speculation, but it's based on, you know, solid peer reviewed literature over the last, you know, decade or, decade or two, which is irrefutable. You know, the, uh, mm. the, the, um, what we've had to be a bit careful about is that we don't double count, you know, the, um, the, uh, if you, if you get a certain improvement, you know, in productivity by improving your, um, uh, physical fitness, and then um, there's another improvement you get for improving your mental health. What you be a bit careful, part of the improvement in mental health could be, was due to your activity, because activity is great for your mental health. So you don't want to count it in both both places. And so we have a way, you know, it, it's called um, in statistics, uh, controlling for confounding variables. Mm -hmm. So we want to want to look at the pure effect of activity, which is independent of BMI, which is independent of nutrition. And, and so, because there, you know, there's a lot of um, overlap between these areas. And um, it's a bit of a hard one to explain sometimes. You know, from a from a HRA point of view, if I had a if I had a one question HRA that just asked you your BMI. I could tell you that with a BMI of you know, 41, your life expectancy has dropped by 10 years, right? right yeah. But that's a single question. If I wanted to add in um, an exercise question, the BMI of 41 doesn't give you 10 years anymore because some of the effect of uh, that activity is already in your BMI, but uh, mm. it wasn't taken out as a confounder, confounding factor. So the more things you add into your HRA, the less um, each one 
can affect the overall outcome as the the crossover the confounding factors are eliminated so it's a it's a bit of um statistical jiggery pokery i call it but um (laughs) jiggery pokery i love that so so but it's a validated statistical technique for sure and uh but it just avoids us uh coming up with uh stupid uh uh, uh, health age calculations right at the, the fringe that no one would believe. Right, right. So this is the thing. With the health age tied in with shape and all the other aspects actually of shape as well, what it sounds to me as though uh, you are be- you're doing here is helping to predict. You're predicting somebody's outcome if their BMI is so and so forth combined with this and that uh, for a business. If their culture is like this or if their managers are like this, then this is the, the foreseeable, predictable future. Uh, and I think this brings me on to something that I really wanted to chat to you about today, uh, which is genomic medicine. So uh, delving back into the, the, the science-y stuff, uh, possibly a little bit here. Um, I've seen the film Gattaca, and that's the that's that one where, you know, they, they sort of help, they use genetics and they use things to design babies design people's children before they've even sort of come out of the womb, for example. So um, that's about as far as I got in terms of my thinking about genomic medicine, John, but you're, you're the, perf- you're the pro here and I'm interested to gauge your thoughts. So as a field uh, in terms of genomic medicine, John, mm-hmm. just give me a, I'm going to put myself in the school schoolboy chair here for a minute. Nice. Uh, Give me an overview, John, of okay. genomic medicine. What what actually is genomic medicine? Okay. Well, if you're the schoolboy, I'll be the. Uh, I'm sort of you know mid high school level. I think I'm not a geneticist, but um, I did study that. genetics, and I I you know most of my PhD involved you know heavy you know cellular biochemistry. So uh, I'm pretty pretty good at genetics, but um, but anyway, look. Interestingly, what, 2003, the Human Genome Project was completed and published in April, and um, that started in 1990, so 13 years. And I remember, you know, roughly that time when that was all happening, 2002, 2003, I, I wrote an article for one of the one of the papers about the new era of genomic medicine and um, what it meant. And probably a bit of a reflection of what was going on at the time, you know, if... Um, you know, doctors were prescribing medicines to people for everything from hypertension, contraception, anxiety, and uh, you name it. And if there was an adverse reaction or side effect or whatever, they'd just change the dose or change the you know the type of medication, different mechanisms of action. You know, there, we've got lots of different antihypertensives these days. And uh, so humans were guinea pigs for, for GPs. They had no choice. You know, they had to you know try and play with what they had, but. Um, the whole idea of genomic medicine was we would be able to relate those adverse effects uh, of a medication to a genet- to the genotype, and um, therefore, you know, as the 19-year-old girl fronting up to your GP for a you know to go on contraception for the first time, he looks at you, uh, you know. In those days, we thought it would be something like a DNA. Uh, microarray, a matrix where you just drop a blood in there, you've got 256 cells light up with all the positives in, you know, this matrix of things. So, okay, uh, you've, um, you know, DMBT3 positive here and you see why CYP1A2 negative here, you know, it looks like, you know, you'd be best on this one. And guess what? You take it um, probably 95, 99% 
chance you won't suffer the side effects that you would have got on uh, another medication. That was the uh, that was what I wrote about, and um, it was part of the the promise of genomic medicine. Fair to say, it hasn't happened. So it's very, you know, the in the what 17, 18 years since then, uh, a lot of work um, and. Some great successes in the cancer realm. You know, we now know, you know, that cancers, there are specific things about, uh, we know about cancers that make them responsive to um, certain, um, certain, you know, drug interventions that will work for some and not for others. And bit by bit, we're fine tuning that. But as I said, on the, la on the whole, a failure to deliver on what, you know, what we, the promise was back, back then. But then something, uh, you know, a bit, bit interesting happened. Um, places like Ancestry and 23andMe came along and all of a sudden you didn't, didn't have to do your DNA through a, uh, a medical facility, you know, and get a GP referral to do it. Spit in a tube and send it off, get your DNA. So the uh, those groups are sitting on, you know, the, the genetic profiles of 100 million people now. <laughs> a, 100 million? A, I didn't realise that. Wow. Well, so somewhere close to that um, and it's ex rising exponentially and this is interesting people have taken it into their, their own hands you know i was uh, doing a work in you know the whole genomic area uh with a uh, last year and uh i uh, i had my gene genome sequenced and uh it was fascinating that um you know with COVID around these days you know we know you know four or five you know genes that uh you know alter the way um, people respond to COVID and it can predict to some degree whether you're going to be, you know, burn and crash badly or whether you're going to have mild symptoms or even be symptom-free. Um, a lot of it's related to that um, that ACE protein on the spike, etc. And so the uh, COVID has spread up genomic medicine very quickly and you probably see every day they sequence, every, you know, a lot of um, viral DNA to um, to look at how the thing is mutating to track its, um, you know, it's the waves around the world. But um, anyway, because of uh, places like 23andMe having all that, uh, that data, they go out and survey, like I get surveyed, you know, every month on various things. And this is now called, I don't know whether you're familiar with the term GWAS, uh, so Genome-Wide Association Study. So let's say 10 million people have had been sequenced, they get, they get asked a, you know, a stress questionnaire and, you know, bingo, there's 150 SNPs, SNPs being a, uh, a single nucleotide polymorphism. So that's a single alteration in a base sequence of the DNA that um, has, um, that um, you know, is a mutation, so to speak. And these can be um, usually there, there's a lot of variations, put it this way. You know, I think uh, my DNA list of SNPs runs to uh, 64,000 lines of, uh, of Excel, <laughs> Excel data. Um, so a lot of individual, huge amount of individual variability there. But it's only through the GWAS type studies um, that we're starting to get, we're starting to work out where to look. Now, if you look at um, uh, physical activity, for instance, uh, you've got, you know, there's about 15% of the population that hardly respond or don't respond at all to cardiovascular exercise yeah. by improving their VO2 max, right? So right. here's a, this was 
absolute jaw-dropping shock to most of us in you know in, in sports science that um, you could people could train for five months you know <laughs> five times a week supervised and get zero change in their you know VO2 max. Turns out when they looked at that data, when they looked at exercise response, and um, uh, it used to come down to uh, you know something called um, ACTM3, uh, alpha actinin 3 um, was the main focus. Then the the, G, the GWAS studies came along. 150 SNPs are implicated in the response to exercise, and some people just are, are non-responders. Interestingly. Uh, one great follow-up study, I think they had 580 or something uh, people in the study, and they did, um, some people did uh, cardiovascular training, aerobic training, and again, 15% or so of those had no response. Then they did the high resistance training. Now, you know, weight training, out of those 500 plus people, um, some people, 0% increase in muscle uh, in one rm the, the you know one repetition yep. max um, so no increase in strength um at the low end at the top end um 250 so imagine if you're starting off with 50 kilos for some people they're still at 50 kilos four months later for some people they're at 250 you know it's probably one person so the range this is why we have the bell curve and we always thought the bell curve was just statistical very random statistical variation but in this case the bell curve was telling us about the genetics of the audience here the non-responders versus the hyper responders so you had these two groups of the the aerobic trainers and, and the high resistance trainers for strength and power when they cross them over it seems, seems that no one was non-responsive to both okay right okay yeah so, I'm with you. When you think of that, uh, think okay. Some of us are probably made for speed and power. So mm. Some of us were made for you know the long haul. And in fact, when you look at the um, genetics across races, um, you know, got to be a bit careful how we phrase this because you know, um, <laughs> you know, I'll put my hand up and claim right up front that there is far greater genetic difference within race than between race, right? Right. Yeah. But amongst the so. Race, you know, a lot of people argue that race uh, does not exist as a scientific concept for that reason, and and it's a valid argument. But there is um, for these um, SNPs that exist that make people, you know, trainable or non-responsive to either high-resistance training or aerobic exercise. There is a 25-fold difference in prevalence in these genes across the the races of you know South Africans versus or you know East Africans versus Asians versus um, Caucasians, you know, etc. Uh, etc. Et and um, so there is some genetic. You know, it's why we don't see Kenyans in hundred meter finals at the end of the day. You know? Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah. I mean, but, um, it, it yeah. sounds immensely complicated in terms of it just all the all the all the uh, compounding variables, as you mentioned earlier. There, and trying to work out what kind of an intervention is going to work for this person or that person. Whether right. you, whether you're talking about a medicine. Uh, does this extend kind of genomic medicine? Does this extend towards even lifestyle choices because we see so many uh you know products on the market now which will claim to be able to tell you whether you're going to respond better 
or have a have an intolerance to this food or that food, for example, just simply based on your spit sample, basically. Yeah, yeah, certainly it does extend to that um, to a degree, depending on you know what conditions you're talking about and uh, and what tests, etc. But um, you know, of course, the the other genomic aspect, as I'm sure you well know, Dan, because we've uh, we talked about it uh, a year or so ago. But you know, the gut biome. So you got your, mm. you got the genes in your body. You got you know ten times more gen- genes in the uh, the biome of your gut, and it turns out they are probably having uh, you know as big an impact, and sometimes more of an impact on your health than the um, than your own cellular you know DNA. You know, plus you know you got that that issue of uh, it's not just about genetics; it's epigenetics, and um, yeah, there's a lot of things that have happened um, that have sort of changed the the global thinking around like it's one thing okay you get genotyped you know what genes you have but are they expressed right right yeah. and you know to use an example the um the de- the so-called depression genes called 5-HTTP 5-hydroxytryptamine transporter gene so are you familiar with this one dan rings a bell it rings a bell <laughs> it's still yeah. early in the day i won't I, I confess john yeah, yeah. but uh, it rings okay. a bell. yeah so quick quick snapshot here there's a part of your brain known as the mesolimbic reward system and the gateway you know that's where you feel good when good things happen right the gateway into that system is uh, some cellular receptors that um, bind serotonin right 5-hydroxytryptamine now the 5-hydroxytryptamine transported gene is the gene that is the you know the transmembrane gene that takes the you know the serotonin across from uh, external to internal where it can have an impact because it becomes in, in, intracellular now there's two genotypes uh, or two um two versions of that with different with a, an SMP variation um one of them's quite active one of them's not but it means there's a lot of people for whom uh a given amount of good things in their life doesn't result in the same sort of happiness that a, a normal person might feel right? right um but a lot of people will carry both genes and the thing is they can be switched on and off and it seems like early lifehood traumatic experiences will switch you switch them over um, often never to be returned and so the um so we call them sle's stressful life events early in life switch over to a um you know that alternate form of the 5-HTT gene that stops your mesolimbic reward system being flooded with serotonin and bingo uh the gray cloud of you know depressed you know emotional state is upon you um so you've got that issue um but you have to have to have had both genes there to start with if you're um what they say homozygous for that uh 5-HTP gene you don't have you've either good good or good or bad bad but you don't have a good bad to switch and that's uh you know uh, mm. one of the one of the things so that's um that whole thing you know uh, that's one of many parts of the um that mesolimbic uh, reward system cycle and you know the um i'm just trying to work a good way to say this the uh, we believe about 40% of the population of the globe that's on anxiolytic medication, right? This is medication for anxiety, is on one that's not compatible with their genotype, right? Right. So, okay. yeah, this is a huge, huge mm. problem. The, the, the condition is not being managed anywhere near as effectively as could be because 
um, you know, we're not genotyping people and, and applying a bit of genomics, uh, you know, around what's best, you know, for this person. Maybe, you know, uh, because it's a bit too early to be too definitive about it. We haven't got all the, the ducks lined up in terms of the, um, you know, prescribing of sort of details, etc. But this is the sort of thing that will happen over the coming years that um, if you've got one of those, you know, even down to, um, uh, you know, the exercise you might do for diabetes, for instance, uh, based on your genotype, we know how yeah. to upregulate up the um, enzyme systems involved in, um, you know, um, the disordered metabolism that is diabetes. So look, it's positive outlook for the future, just a bit slow coming. Uh, and of course, you know, we're now in a position because of the GWAS studies that we, we know what to look at, but, you know, teasing out 150 genes to see what, <laughs> which yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. which ones in which combinations work um, is a very complex thing. So do, um, do, you, do you think that, I don't know, relatively as a, as a guesstimate, you know, within, within our lifetimes, perhaps, do you think we'll be in a position where we can, if some guy is looking to go to the gym, uh, to, to, to gain muscle size and so on, or someone wants to, uh, understand what response they're going to have to some kind of dietary thing for type two diabetes, whatever it might be in our lifetime. Do you think that that's something foreseeable thinking back to the, you know, um, in in your yeah, lifetime, abso ab absolutely. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, and look, I'm hoping I'll see, you know, part of it during mine. But um, look, it, it's, it will happen. Um, you know, uh, again, it's, you know, the, the cost implications are all, you know, it's a changing feast, you know, all the time as the prices come down. Think of how, how much it cost to have your genome sequenced five years ago versus now, you know, it's a few hundred bucks. Um, and as these um, big studies, and of course, you're running one of the biggest and best in the world straight out of the UK with the UBL um, program. Right. Um, mm. You know, they've got half a million people in that program. They've genotyped them and they've got about 700, um, you know, physical, medical, sociological, you know, demographic variables that they've looked at. And um, so, you know, over the life course, that will, that program will follow, I think, you know, 480, 490,000 people to the day they die. And, um, wow. and they've got all that data. They will be able to tease out, you know, what's working. It's a, it's a job for big data and AI because it's a bit too complex for the average mathematician. But um, it's possibly the, you know, the, the best, you know, predictive um, study of its type ever conducted conducted so good on the palms for doing that <laughs> um yeah absolutely you mentioned uh there as well actually towards the start john you mentioned that you're part of your background part of your story your journey to where you are is your uh, phd you started life off in a, as a student looking at muscle hypertrophy uh, yep. or hypertrophy however you how you want to pronounce it um now looping in with this i this this kind of concept which you just mentioned about responders so you've got people who go to the gym some of the most people will kind of fall in the middle somewhere in terms of you know relative gains in fitness or strength and so on some sadly won't have anything which you know is uh, unfortunate for sure and then some will have high so when it comes to the the whole muscle field muscle hypertrophy john is that something that um uh you know you're still in any shape working in or interested in or where are you at with that uh, one? yeah look um 
I look keep an active interest in it because it was you know it was my life for you know five years. It was uh, li- right. was living, eating, breathing, you know, rat plantaris mussels. Yeah. <laughs> so that uh, no, and you know, fascinating stuff. Just a, a in a, a quick snapshot of that uh, research. I'd um, I've just uh, you know if people are listening to this that are not sports scientists, um, this might be. Um, yeah, a bit out there for them. But the, um, you know, we all know fast and slow twitch fibres, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you assess them is you whack a 14-gauge needle into someone's thigh, take a tissue sample, section it on a microtome, put it on a slide, and then you stain it. So that stain is, um, it's called, it's the, the, um, the assay that's run there is what's called calcium-activated myosin ATPase, right? So calcium as a, you know, divalent cation is uh, activating the myosin, one of the filaments in the skeletal muscle, to split ATP. And when you split ATP, as you well know, you get ADP, uh, the diphosphate from the triphosphate, liberates PI, inorganic phosphate, and uh, and energy. And that energy is the global currency for all activity, every, every animal, you know, mammal, bird, snake, Whatever on the planet, that's ATP. That's the the um, the currency of energy in the body. So, calcium activated ATP. So, what happens when you take that muscle, sick bit of muscle, put it on the slide? You run the calcium activated myosin ATPase. So what the calcium does is activate the myosin to split the ATP. When that phosphate is liberated in sufficient quantities, it it's, it exceeds its solubility coefficient and it precipitates out. So then when you come along and stain for phosphate, it's there, stains dark. And so those cells come up dark staining, right? But that um, is a threshold reaction, right? So calcium, uh, so imagine you've got a thousand, a thousand cells with various rates of ATPase. They're able to split ATPase, some fast, some slow, some in the middle. Now, if you increase all of them by 10%, what will happen is 10% of them will cross the threshold. And on when you look at that um, slide under a microscope, you'll say, oh, look at that. We've got 10% more um, slow fibres than we had before. Well, sorry, fast fibres than we had before. Sure. What you have is 100% of fibres that are 10% faster, but only 10% of them cross the threshold. So that made fibre typing an essentially redundant, um, you know, methodology at that time. The other thing is um, using calcium to activate myosin is not what happens in vivo in the in real life in your body. Um, uh, I don't know whether you remember steric blocking, but you know calcium binds tropin and tropomyosin that uh, unlo- uh, rolls off the, the myosin and the actin connects to the myosin and it's myosin that activates the ATPase. Sorry, actin that activates the ATPase. So the whole premise of fiber types based on calcium activation is a completely unphysiological, unphysiologic thing. So um, look, I was, uh, that work was uh, in Canada quite uh, groundbreaking. So that's, I picked up a nice uh, scholarship, you know, in the medical faculty at Monash down in Melbourne and spent five years researching all the ramifications of that work. And it essentially invalidates, you know, most of the entire history of muscle fibre types <laughs> as yeah. a predictor of performance. So um, it's, uh, so that was, you know, I love doing that. And as I said, I was off to Norway until Dirk, uh, you know, passed away unexpectedly. Um, so a little bit 
you know, obviously a little bit sad not to be able to sort of follow through with that work. But I have loved the world of business and particularly, you know, the world of health management because, you know, I, I do look at people who, are, you know, maybe, you know, photocopy a repairman and car salesman and think, you know, uh, fronting up to work doing that job compared to what I get to do, you know, different as chalk and cheese, but health, good, good on them. We need them all. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, so probably from the hypertrophy, well, I got a bit off onto fiber types there, but the hypertrophy no, okay. thing, uh, that'll, this will interest you, Dan, what the model we used. Okay. So in the hind limb of the rat, you've got the big gastrocnemius, right? Mm. Um, and you've got the little guy underneath there called the plantaris, uh, which in humans is vestigial. Uh, we have we're more soleus gastroc. But um, anyway, what we do is uh, unilaterally, one side in the hind limb, we take out the uh, the gastroc called, called um, synergist ablation, and we leave the plantaris in. So we've taken out 82% of the weight of the muscle muscles that plantar flex the foot. And so what happens is that muscle that's left to do the job really overloaded big time those muscles um double in or 50 to 100 percent increase in size 30 days right massive hypertrophy right what what was the interesting thing is they turned slow right and you think you know these muscles are um growing under load hypertrophy and usually hypertrophy is you know yeah. the domain of fast twitch um mm. high resistance weight training but they turned slow. Why the hell did they turn slow? And it seems that taking out the gastroc meant that the role of the plantaris changed completely. It moved from a, an intermittent, intermittently active locomotor muscle to a chronically active postural muscle, right? So it, if you're going to be postural and be chronically active with low frequency electrical inputs to maintain you know, postural maintenance, um, that turns you slow regardless of what happens to the size of the muscle. So these muscles did the thing that no one ever expected them to do. They got bigger and stronger and slower. Whereas normally when you bodybuild, you get bigger and stronger and, and faster um, because it's your fast twitch fibers that are preferentially recruited, etc. So anyway, we, we teased all this out, um, did some great uh, thermodynamic work, uh, looking at work to work plus heat ratios. And essentially um, we found that those muscles that became postural, uh, the plantaris becomes postural, they were great at maintaining tension in a essentially a, a rigor state, an isometric state with very low energy turnover. So this is maintenance of tension with low energy costs, perfect for postural muscles, and it's what postural muscles do. Um, the, um, and so, you know, we started to realize, and then we got into, um, I won't go into all the details, but we, we worked out that if you chronic low frequency electrical stimulation turns muscles slow when we cut the nerve to the muscle it turns fast so it seems that the net electrical impulse to a muscle is determining its speed so mm. we started doing other things we brought up rats in hypergravity cages like um, you know one and a half g's so a rat that might weigh 400 grams is walking around its cage this is a big rotating disc, right? Just slowly yeah, yeah. rotating, but it's adding 50% to the load of every standing still. Mm. Um, we turned the muscles slow. 
you know, hypergravity stress, chronic low frequency electrical stimulation, the switching, we did, we crossed tendons to make forced muscles to become postural when they were locomotor, hundred change fiber type completely, right? So we were able to manipulate at will the fast slow twitch muscle fibers at a time when people were saying it can't happen. So, uh, right, yeah. you know, which was, uh, was quite exciting. And um, wow. so, uh, the, and the other thing uh, probably of interest, you know, plasticity of muscle, we decided, oh, I wonder if we did this, tried these experiments uh, on younger rats, whether they would be, you know, more responsive. So we went all the way to newborn. We got them on the day they were born. Uh, newborn rat pups weigh on average seven grams. So seven grams. That's seven just... grams. It's a, so that's, a, you know, what's a, it's like a quarter of a shot of a spirit in a glass. Yeah. That's how, yeah, yeah. That's how small I am. So I'm there with my high power binocular microscopes. I've got my hands in gauntlets, you know, because you can't, you got very, you had to make these tools. They're extruded glass probes and all sorts of things with very fine sort of things. Anyway, we, um, but we found we could, um, double or triple the hyper, hypertrophic response if we did it in newborn rats. They were just so much more responsive to um, the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the the alteration in load. And they became not just a lot more slow, they became, they became 100% slow postural because we got them um, pre-differentiated because they hadn't yet decided which path they were going down. Uh, so we forced them down, down the path. But a lot of uh, yeah, fun times. And, of course, that was... Um, you know, a long time ago. I still yeah. remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, that's the, the, I mean, the questions are filling up, John. And I think when it comes to muscle, muscle, uh, hypertrophy, muscle tissue in general, uh, I'm thinking let's, let's, uh, let's not delve into the depths of that one quite just yet. But, um, the thing that stands out to me here is that just the sheer number of things that you've, you've done, John, and it, even though this was a long, a long while ago, really for, for you, the, uh, it's amazing that it's just it's still so fresh in your mind you're still passionate you're still inspiring about it and that's uh that's absolutely incredible with everything else that's going on as well so um for you john i think just uh moving into the near future uh what's what's on the cards for you is it is it shape work is that what's taking up the majority of your mental space or have you got yeah, other things looking forward it's, to it's uh look you know the it's for been four years in the making, it's a, a month or so out from launch. And I suppose what I have been doing is uh, sort of reinvigorating my networks. You know, um, the business that I ran in corporate health, you know, we had, um, you know, 1,000, maybe 1,500 companies on the books, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes millions of employees. But um, so, you know, got to know a lot of people, but um, in high places, but it's sort of reconnecting with those people say, hey, here I am again, remember me, and I've got something new. And um, look, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, fortunately, for a lot of them, I, you know, my um, history with them is good enough to get an audience. Um, and, but there's always a bit of scepticism around something as new and, uh, and innovative as this. Funny enough, I say innovative, everything that's in those 12 explorers has been well and truly tried and tested. What hasn't been done is have them put together in the way we've done it and build it into a multi-tiered program, you know, for, you know, for corporate uh, interventions. But, um, but we have had um, 
you know, some real great um, response from King's College in the London, the UK, um, the Stanford University in the US, who are working with us to um, to make sure that as the data comes off the uh, off the production line, we're getting some some great early publications and uh, uh, concept validation, proof of concept, etc. Um, so, yeah, look, I did all the hard work on shape. Uh, over the first two or three years, then we moved into design and development, and that's more the role of you know that's overseen more by my my business partner, who's a bit of an IT guru. Um, but now it's uh, you know getting out there and pressing the flesh, you know, uh, kissing babies and just letting the world know it's arrived. So um, that is um, yeah. Look, I. It's funny, I um, never considered myself a salesperson, but right. you, you mentioned a minute ago, I'm still very passionate about what I do. And uh, I think that passion comes through when I talk to people about, uh, and certainly when I was running the health business, um, you know, I probably pulled in, you know, 80, 85% of all sales in the entire wellness business um, because number one, people like to speak to someone who has a title. Doctor's a good one. They like to speak to someone who's high up. CEO is pretty high, etc. Someone that is passionate about their stuff. That's me and uh, knows what they're talking about. That's me. And so it was pretty easy to get out there and, um, you know, do that. And I'm, I'm finding um, but you know, I always thought I didn't do all my study and research and all the management training and everything to be, a, you know, a salesperson. But um, it uh, it is a, an art form that not that many people get right, I, I think. And it's funny, I never studied or anything. It just, it, in fact, I had a, um, we won a huge contract many years ago. Um, and I think I flubbed my way through it, you know, in pretty ordinary presentation um etc and you know when we got it it was the largest uh, health management contract ever to exist in australia and uh wow. the um and uh, you know afterwards in the aftermath why 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 me well why us and uh they said well look we asked one simple question you know who would we entrust the health of our people to and so they said, it doesn't matter that you, you know, flubbed a few lines and you did this, you know, we, we can see you, you're genuine, you're knowledgeable, you, you know, you're committed, you are leading a bunch of people that will do the right thing for us. And so that went on to be, um, you know, a huge, huge uh, program, probably um, the one that got me into the big league in the end of the day, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, um, you know, from there, of course, uh, setting up, <laughs> Uh, one thing we haven't touched on, Dan, which I'll I won't wait for the question. I might throw in there for you. <laughs> Go for it. Go but, for it. <laughs> um, the industry. I don't know. I know a bit about your industry in the UK, but uh, in the early part of the two thousands, um, or oh, and the decade or two before, you know, it was it was every man for himself. There were people doing all sorts of weird things under the name of wellness. And I uh, ha happened to meet with the uh, health minister, the federal health minister, girl by the name of Nicola Roxon, who had you know, taken on the smoking, uh, the, the tobacco lobby and won and was quite famous for it. And uh, I said, well, look, we're doing great things for the health of employees. You guys are beneficiaries because it's all about productivity and, you know, good business practices and people work longer, pay taxes, you know, and guess what? They spend less, the, use less healthcare dollars. <laughs> so you should be supporting us. And she said to me, John, I'd love to, but, you know, your your industry is full of unregulated rabble. <laughs> and so this was the, you know, the one-liner from the minister, unregulated rabble. Yeah. I thought, 
you know, and I had to say she was right. So that was uh, that was the red red rag to a bull. I uh, got the, all the uh, all the players together and said, look, you know, I'm forming the industry body. It was at the time it was called Happier, the Health and Productivity Institute of Australia. Uh, we and uh, got buy-in from everyone, and we started to oversee standards and accreditation, ethical business practices, evidence-based approaches to, to um, you know, all the interventions. And we, after a couple of years, got our act together, went to government, went back to Nicola and said, hey, we're not unregulated rabble anymore. And uh, we invited them along to our conferences and everything. And over the next couple of years, picked up one and a half billion dollars in funding from state and federal governments to do all, you know, all the, the wellness stuff. So completely you know, change the industry. And it was probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my working life is that, um, you know, took that uh, very uncoordinated, often well-intentioned, but sometimes not so, all those providers. And rather than competing for a market share of 10% of, of the pie, we expanded the pie out to 50, 60, 70%. So we all got, um, we might've had a, a smaller portion, but we got more pie at the end of the day. Yeah. That's absolutely, it's just phenomenal, John, to hear more about this, all, all of this and, and, and how this is all kind of un, unraveled and, and uh, unraveled in a positive sense uh, along along the way, really. So get, I'm conscious of this, though, your your drive to, I guess, succeed in, in this is, is absolutely evident. You've done just so many different things. You continue to do amazing things in terms of innovating and trying to transform uh the industry, I suppose. So if if you could give, if you could look back at your personal journey, uh, not for me in particular here, but for anyone who might be listening to this podcast, uh, out of university, sports science graduates, people in the early stage career, anyone like that, what kind of, do you, what advice would you give to anyone in that position in terms of looking ahead to the future, where to focus the effort? Uh, does anything come to mind? Uh, yeah, look, you know, I sort of mentioned it earlier with the reference to, uh, you know, photocopy or repairman, <laughs> you know, do something you're passionate about because it's hard not to be engaged when you're, when you're passionate about something. You know, I, you know, I had a bit of a, um, I wouldn't call it a crisis, but, you know, having failed in so many areas early on, you know, I was a, a you know, a, a, con, a, a constant failure. When, and it's funny, I was... Um, a while back, I uh, I wrote a I wrote a book, and it was um, I got to that that um, there were so many unfinished things in my life. I thought, gee, you know, if I I, I, I wrote a book, I got ninety percent of the way there, and I thought, oh, you know, job done. And of course, it's a bit like your PhD, a bit like you know everything else. Like you never finish as a musician; it's never job done there. Um, and I suppose um, you know, bit by bit, I started to tick over, you know the finishing touches to a, a lot of things, you know, whether it be business, sport, music, everything. Um, and so, you know, a bit of stickability, um, you know, be passionate about things, uh, never, you know, pull up stumps on the, uh, the learning side of things. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about a lifelong learning mindset when I do a lot of corporate work and, um, you know, you can't afford not to have one in this day and age because it's a fast moving, you know, world out there. You, you, mm. You've got to have a lifelong more lifelong learning mindset or you will not keep up. There's no, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, probably try and be, um, 
you know, at, at least an expert in something. So no, no matter how small, you know, know more about something than everyone else. And whether that's a hobby related to, you know, work related or not work related, um, you know, I went, just love the fact I sit in my music room here and uh, my working day is, you know, if I get a bit of a mental block or whatever, I work on a bit of, uh, you know, blues in E minor and, you know, rock on. And, um, yeah. It's uh, mental blocks are gone. So, you know, work out, you know, what works for you in terms of your own productivity and uh, performance and, um, and how you handle, you know, you know the the pressures and all that sort of stuff um i must admit i think i'm a http short person which means i've, I've got the um, less depression prone <laughs> sort of sort of gene but um look uh, you know that's um and you know you never underestimate yourself i think um i don't i certainly don't look at myself as being you know someone to aspire you know i admit i've achieved quite a bit but nothing that anyone with a bit of perseverance nothing that that required you know superior intellect or anything more than a bit bit of guts and determination so um you know uh, keep keep that in mind that that all sounds impressive and it sounds like you've got a you know iq of 200 but i ain't <laughs> so sure well, <laughs> the thing is you've just what you've just said there is uh part of i think what's come out from today at the very least john is is the sense of that journey that you've been through um and you've done things that you have uh you know failed in you've done things that you've succeeded in potentially there's a nice little retirement fund somewhere in the future for ugly diving again if you fancy taking that up as a as an inaugural <laughs> world australian champion uh, and so on and um oh yeah. yeah i think that that's i think that that's great yeah good so i do um i'll send you a, a picture of my ugly divers diving has progressed to good much better looking diving these days so i do have a bunch of pictures uh diving off various rock formations around the world you know uh into oh. the uh, mediterranean from the cliffs of santorini or into uh from the split rocks into into new york harbor and this sort of stuff so the, uh, it's a still part of still a diving passion but i try and do it with a bit more elegance these days right let's just flop a little bit more elegantly right <laughs> or something like that yeah that's right so I, i'll send you send you a pic you can uh, see it's not that ugly these days please do that'd be great that'd be great i look forward to it um listen john it's getting it's getting it must be getting a little bit late for you in the evening right now so um i think this is a nice place to call it a day but um from me thank you very much for putting the time aside uh, this evening today i know i know even more so now just how much you've got going on and how how many things you're working on so the fact you've taken a little bit of time to have a chat with me today and explore your journey your backstory a little bit further has been uh, just massively interesting so yeah a huge thank you to you thank you so much Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Uh, enjoyable. And I uh, hope the, um, the listeners uh, enjoyed it as much as I did.